0: So we have a treat this morning. Uh, many of you know Jonathan Nash. Some of you don't. And uh, Jonathan is one of the pastors here at Midtown, and he leads our Napier Initiative, uh, where him and his family uh, are urban farmers, but also church planters. And um, he's come to preach to us today out of the book of Luke. So Jonathan, can I pray for you? Do you have your notes? You going to preach from the step there? You can come on up, man. We'll let you have the stage. Come on up, man. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I pray for uh, my friend and my co-laborer that, Lord, you'd bless his words and bless our hearts. And when I say blessing, Lord, I pray that you would come in and kick over the tables in our hearts that are resistant towards you and the fear that prevents us from walking in faith. And give us courage today to rise up to be the church that you have already made us to be. I pray that, Lord, you would give us grace to be led by this man today. In Christ's name, amen. You know,
1: I know we, uh, we just transitioned uh, from the baptism to the sermon. But I'm struck and I kind of want to say something that maybe I'll forget to say in the sermon. But just in your mind, draw, draw a line, kind of attach a hook to what we just saw in that baptism, and the, even the prayer that was prayed, and, and connect that somewhere to what I'm about to talk about in the sermon, because we, you know, we don't believe in the church that we, we do believe that we do everything of a whole, right? That, that what we do is all to the glory of God, and it's, and it's all under the belief of our deep need for the Lord and the deep need for His forgiveness. Um, and I think you'll see that come out in the sermon um, but we don't just kind of do a baptism to have a baptism. That's kind of the, the end of that stage. And now we're into the sermon stage. Um, it, it's, it's all of a whole. So, Jenny, please come on up. Um, she's going to read in our passage. We're in the book of Luke um, in our series. If you have one of your uh, beautiful purple illuminated Bibles, you can pull that out. Um, and Jenny is going to read. Um, we are in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 17 to 26. So Jenny, whenever you're ready, go ahead.
2: On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today.
1: Thank you, Jenny, this is the word of the Lord. Y'all pray with me quickly. Father, as we um, now you know, begin to speak and, and as I try humbly to expound on the word that was just read, I um, just want to pray that uh, none of us would run away with the things that I say um, unless they're inspired by you. Pray that um, your spirit would be so kind to us that even in our moments of weakness uh, and, and unbelief or misunderstanding that you'd protect us and that you would um, only allow the things that I'm saying that are of you to fall on ears. And uh, the things that I would potentially say that are not of you, Lord, help me and protect me uh, from that and protect the people here. Um, but to do that, Lord, we need open ears. Uh, we need open ears to hear truth and to receive it. And so I pray for, for soft hearts, uh, for your water to fall on what is oftentimes very hard soil in our hearts and soften it and make room for new growth to sprout, just like we witnessed um, a few minutes ago as this young man professed his faith in you. Would we all be like uh, a child this morning as we listen to you and hear from our good Father? And it is in your son's name that we pray, amen. So, when was the last time that you were actually surprised by something? Maybe like in a book or a movie? Any of you all seen *Parasite*? Okay, I didn't even know that there was. We have one. <laughs> just let's like not miss the significance that the movie that just won Best Picture in uh, the Academy Awards has been seen by maybe two people in here. <laughs> I, I had not tru- truthfully. I don't think I'd even heard of this film uh, before the night of the Oscars. Um, but it's apparently it's a surprising movie. So maybe maybe well clearly it wasn't *Parasite* that you saw, but maybe there's been a movie that you've seen recently that was surprising. Well, what makes something surprising? Have you ever thought about that? Like, is there kind of a formula? You know, we, we, we use this phrase, the element of surprise. You've heard that before, right? So, like, there's an element to something. There's kind of some, some pieces, some integral puzzle pieces that make something surprising. There is a, a woman, she's actually a professor of cognitive linguistics. That right there is a surprise. I didn't know that that was a thing. And I certainly couldn't tell you what it means. But, Professor of Cognitive Linguistics, her name is Vera Tobin, and she's written a book called The Element of Surprise. And the book is, is, is fascinating. I've read, you know, about the first half of it by this point, and she's, she's digging into this idea of surprise, and she's kind of writing it, obviously, from a cognitive perspective. She's writing it as an expert in brain science, and she's, she's kind of asking the question, well, what are the elements within us that react to the elements of surprise in a story? That causes us to have these aha moments or these oh no moments, right? What, what is the thing that kind of takes you from the place of, I think I understand what's going on, I think I kind of know the lay of the land, I, th- I think I kind of have my pieces in place and I understand where this story is going? What takes you from that place to the turn, right? The turn where you realize that what you thought was going on is actually not what's going on at all. And I think what's important as we move into our passage this morning and as we're getting into continuing in our series in Luke is, is it's this fact that surprise goes beyond what's in books and movies, right? Like surprise isn't just a thing that exists in a story outside of you. Surprise is actually inherent to us as people. That we don't just read about surprise or watch surprise, we live it. A good example of that is when the director, the, the, the creator of the movie Parasite, when he heard, I don't know if you watched the Oscars, when he heard that he had won Best Picture, what was his reaction? Surprise. Like, deep surprise. Like, he couldn't believe it. So, I know this maybe gets a little crazy, but he's writing a story about surprise, and then he still himself lived surprise. So, surprise is so much deeper than just the stories that we read or the movies that we watch. Surprise is integral to who we are as people, that, that we actually experience and live surprise all the time. So our series that we're in is this series called Meeting Jesus. And you could say that every time someone meets Jesus, there's something surprising that happens. The, the entire uh, Bible, but, but certainly within the Gospels, is essentially one huge surprise after another as people meet Jesus, because we believe something about Jesus. And it's something I've probably heard from Randy first. It's that when we meet Jesus, he always meets us where we're at, but he never leaves us there, right? Like, we, we only can ever meet Jesus as the people that we are. We, we always meet Jesus, and he always meets us in the place where we're at, but he never leaves us there. He takes us somewhere else. And therein lies the surprise. So I'll ask you, what's surprising in the story that we just heard read? What was the surprise in there? How does, how does Jesus meet this man where he's at, and where does he surprise him with where he's taking him? So let's look back at the story for a second, because there's actually several things that are surprising in this passage, right? The, the story is actually one of the reasons it's so good, and one of the reasons that we probably, if you've grown up in Christian faith, and you've grown up in the church, you probably have heard this story before, right? This, it's always known as, oh yeah, it's the guy that gets you know, lowered down from the roof, Right? That's that story where Jesus heals this guy that gets lowered down from the roof. Clearly, that's a surprising moment. But we see in verse 17, it says, you know, in those days as Jesus was teaching, essentially all the important people in the entire country were coming to listen to him. That he was a big deal by this point, right? He had lots of followers and everybody was coming to listen to him and to hear him preach. He had done lots of surprising things already. He'd healed lots of people. It's people. It says in verse 17, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So it kind of seems like this is just a routine Jesus moment. He's got a large crowd. They're listening to him, and he's teaching. And then in 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Not surprising, right? Very normal. I mean, at least for this time. But, here we go, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they did something surprising. They went up to the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. Just as like a little bit of background, Jesus probably would have been preaching in sort of an open-air courtyard that many large homes had at that time. An open-air courtyard, except there would have been sort of some overhanging parts of the roof. And so what we think is that there was an, uh, an entrance way into the roof that the men could access outside the house. And so they decide, well, we're going to carry this man up to the roof, We can't quite get to Jesus because he's probably out in the middle of this open area. So we'll just kind of peel back some tiles or or peel back some of the thatch that was in this roof, and we'll make a hole, and we'll lower Jesus down. I mean, it's brilliant. And so they do that, and they let this man down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And all the people, as as surprising as it probably would have been for this man to all of a sudden be descending from the sky, all the people expected to know what was going to happen next. That even though we're already in a little bit of a surprising story, everybody kind of expected, they already kind of knew, they were pretty certain what was going to happen next. Jesus was going to heal the man, because that's what he did. And this is where I think the real surprise comes in the story, because that's not what Jesus does at least not right away a man who very clearly had a physical problem that needed fixing a man whose whose physical problem was very apparent to everybody who who you know everyone would have understood this is why you're coming to Jesus this is why your friends lowered you from the roof for your legs to be healed Jesus doesn't address that at least not at first because in verse 20 we read this and when he saw their faith the faith of the man and the faith of the people carrying him, I'm assuming. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that became the mic drop moment. Not the large crowds, not the man being lowered through the ceiling. Jesus' statement to this man, man, your sins have been forgiven. That becomes the remarkable thing in the story. Because everything after that, the the, the other half of this passage, is essentially dealing with the fallout of what Jesus said to this man. We notice the Pharisees, they call him a blasphemer. They say, only God can do this. So they're surprised. All the people, I mean, look at just the language in those final couple verses. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The NIV uses the word remarkable. We've seen remarkable things today. It's actually the only time in all of scripture that that word, extraordinary or remarkable, the word used there is in, the, is in the Bible, right here. So my question this morning, and what we're gonna dig into is, what is it that's so surprising about forgiveness? Why is it that when Jesus wants to really do something remarkable, when he really wants to catch people off guard, Right, when he really wants to meet this man and take him somewhere else, what he does is he doesn't heal this man's physical ailment at first. He says, your sins are forgiven. You know, there's even a question in here that I think is so fascinating. He, he, Jesus says to the Pharisees after they're marveling that he forgives the man's sins. He says, what's harder? In other words, what's more remarkable? What's more surprising saying to this man, Get up and walk? Or saying to this man, your sins are forgiven? What's more remarkable? Well, I think, um, let's jump off into this idea of sin and forgiveness. Because those are the two words that are in the statement that Jesus makes to the man. Man, your sins are forgiven you. So when we come up to this, this kind of concept of sin, when, when you maybe hear Jesus say, what's more remarkable, saying, man, your sins are forgiven, or, or man, get up and walk, We probably many of us go, well, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm, I don't know which one, they both seem kind of crazy. Well, I think it's interesting being people in this day and age when we ever come kind of up against this concept of sin. Um, I uh, have a friend, um, she's actually uh, a tattoo artist who did my kids' footprints, okay? So I have my kids' footprints tattooed in my arm. Her name's uh, Shirley, and we were talking one day um, as she was doing uh, Gracie's footprints on my arm, and we kind of always get into these interesting conversations. and at some point she was talking about something in her life and and was just kind of really digging into this and and kind of marveling at like, how in the world did this kind of stuff happen? And I made a comment, and I don't even remember what I said, but I used the word sin, okay? And she knows I'm a pastor, okay? She kind of pokes fun at me for it. And her, her words, as soon as I, again, I don't even remember what I said, but as soon as I used the word sin, her words to me were, you know, that is just a concept that's been created to keep people down. Like that—that's what like That's what that is. That sin, Like you just use that word, Like it's kind of offensive to me. That's just, a, that's just a, a, a thing people have created in order to keep other people down. And that's always stuck with me. Why is it that we, when we enter into this whole discussion of sin and forgiveness, but when we're talking about sin, why is it that the immediate response of a lot of people is, oh, wait a second, let's not go there. That we can actually, in many ways, we can keep our our faith, we can even keep our Christian faith and edit out or delete the whole concept of sin from it. So what I want to propose or what I want to begin to talk about is why is it that an understanding of sin and a right understanding of sin is so important to this whole concept of what Jesus is doing with this man? Why is an understanding of sin so important to the concept of forgiveness? Well, I think for many of us, we have this kind of idea of sin as sin has everything to do with behavior, right? And so we kind of have like all these things, you know, there's kind of a whole bunch of things in your life that are called sin. A whole bunch of behaviors, a whole bunch of things you do that are called sin. And then there's a whole bunch of other things, right? that we would call, like, you know, good deeds. So we kind of got the bad things and the good things. And all of life is essentially, can I, can I, you know, sort of pick out and pick and choose what are the things I should be doing, and what are the things I should not be doing? And so sin becomes disobedience. It becomes not following the law of God, and of course that is very true right? That, that, that is a very, that, that, that's kind of the surface level of what sin is. is. Sin is disobedience against the Lord. It's doing things that the Lord does not consider good. But I think that's actually really, although true, that is just kind of the very top layer. That's a very shallow understanding of what sin is. And when sin is only seen as sort of this the things that are not good, then I, I agree with my friend that it can actually be a concept or a, or a human construction that's used to, to keep people down. Because here's what happens. All of Christian life or all of life now becomes well, are you doing more of these or are you doing more of these? Kind of becomes like you know the the employee handbook, right? or it becomes like the, the neighborhood association rules. Like, like are, you, are you one of the people that kind of, are you a good person or are you a sinful person? Is all of your faith or is all of your life this, this kind of journey of understanding, can, can my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? And where do I fall? And so for many of us, maybe it was growing up in an oppressive family system. Maybe it was growing up in, in a, with, with bad church experiences. And we've, we've had this whole concept of sin on a very shallow level, on a very basic level, taught to us that what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is someone that just tries so hard to make sure that the good things in my life outweigh the bad things, that I'm kind of this side of the line person, not this side of the line person. And yes, that can actually be used like a hammer that can be used as a, as a way of saying, you know, you know what, you don't belong here. That church, this space, this is a place for these people. Not a place for these people. And for some of us, that's the experience we've had. But one of the great surprises of Christianity... And I think one of the big surprises that Jesus is picking up on here with the crowd and why he does what he does is the answer is it's actually a lot worse than that. Like like one of the biggest surprises of Christianity is sin is actually a whole lot worse than this. That this is just scratching the surface when it comes to understanding what is sin and what is my heart's relationship with sin. And so I wanna ask you a question. If, if that's true, and go with me, if it's true that this is actually much, you know, this is actually not as bad as things are, that there's actually, the surprise of, of the Christian faith is that sin is worse than this whole idea of just kind of having some bad things and then having some good things and we want the good things to weigh the bad things. Let me ask you this question. Is sin a fruit or is sin a root? Okay, just go with me here real quick. So is sin, is sin this? So if this is kind of a tree, right? Maybe this whole thing is a tree. Is sin kind of what happens up here? Or is sin what plays out down here? These are roots, by the way. Well, the answer is, is both. But don't you see that if I miss if I miss the fact that there's a root component to what's going on here if all I see is my life as behavior then I'm only going to be I'm only going to be looking at this concept in a really shallow way And the reason this this whole concept of sin is so much worse than just, well, I hope my bad deeds outweigh my good, or my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, is what Jesus is coming and saying, and what the whole gospel says, and what the teaching of Jesus all says, is there's actually a much more important root to what's going on in your heart when you sin than just bad behaviors. That if it was just a matter of fruit, right, if it was just a matter of these things up here in the trees, well then, the, the question would just be, can I get the right inputs, right? Can I get, like if this is a tree, right? Can I get enough sun? Can I get enough soil? Can I, can I get the right kind of you know, soil and enough water? That my life is just, if I get the right inputs, then maybe the right outputs will come. Because that's the way it works with a plant. If you just give it the things it needs, then it's gonna give you what it, what it produces. But what the Gospel says, and what Jesus is attacking here is, oh no, 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 sin goes much deeper than the fruit. That what's actually the problem here, what's what's actually the problem in the life of this man, and what's the problem in all of our lives, is that our hearts, at the root, are corrupt. That there's not just fruits of sin, although, although there are fruits of sin. But there's not just fruits of sin, there's also roots. And so what Jesus gets at when he preaches what what the sermon on the mount gets at when it says you've heard it said that you should not murder but i tell you if you have anger against a brother in your heart then you've committed the same crime what he's getting at there is there's a heart posture that what we need is not just our behaviors to change but we need a new heart we need new roots that what Jesus is after when he forgives sins is he's not just after, well, I hope that you begin to do less of these and you do more of these, and I hope you pursue you know, getting the right water so that you can just produce the right things. He's saying, no, 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 you need me on such a more deep level. And what it has so much more to do about is that it has so much more to do with your heart. And it has so much more to do with the way that your heart is or isn't oriented toward the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. Let's go back to the very first sin. Okay, the very first sin that was ever committed by Adam and Eve. What is it that first gets Eve and then Adam in the garden? The serpent says to them, he says, did God really say that you were supposed to do these things? Did God really say that he is the way he is to you. Did did, did God really say, in other words, what the serpent begins to put in Eve's mind is this idea of doubt? In other words, doubt that God's not good. Doubt doubt that God actually isn't who he says he is to Eve. Doubt, Doubt that God actually isn't going to give Eve and give Adam the things that he said he's gonna give them. In other words, doubt that God's enough, that God's worthy of worship. And so then what then happens after that seed of doubt gets planted, well, then Eve goes and then Eve takes of the fruit. In other words, before Eve and Adam sin up here in this level, there's something that was planted way down deep in them, in the roots, in their heart, and it broke their orientation with the Lord. It broke the way that their heart was looking at the Lord in a place of, Lord, I'm at peace with you. Lord, I'm your friend. Lord, you love me and I love you. And it now took their heart to a place of, wait a second, the Lord isn't gonna give me what I need. The Lord actually isn't all the things he has said that he is for me. And the Bible (laughs) calls that enmity with God. When our hearts are now turned and they're not at peace with the Lord anymore, they're at war. And so the root of sin What's actually down at the root of all these things, and and, and we'll go to the text in just a second, what's at the root of the things that, that Jesus had to forgive this man of when he says, man, your sins are forgiven, what's at the root is a heart that says to God, I will worship, I will serve, I will love something other than you. I will choose something that you created and love that, whether it's myself, whether it's other people, whether it's material things, I will choose the things you created and not you, the creator. And it's from that place that our disobedience and our behaviors flow. So you see why the truth is actually much more surprising? That the truth about sin is actually a lot worse than we think it is. That the truth about sin is is a surprisingly bad narrative that my heart is actually corrupt, that the thing that needs to be healed is not my behaviors, but it's the roots way down deep in my heart. And it's why in Romans 3, Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Everyone has turned away. So if that's the truth of sin, what does that then do to forgiveness? Because the surprising thing is not that Jesus tells this man, hey, you're a sinner. But it's that he tells him, your sins are forgiven. So, so how does understanding sin rightfully now allow us to see what Jesus did for this man in all its splendor and all its glory? And to see it for the surprise that it actually is? Well, it's because sin and forgiveness are inextricably connected. If my understanding of sin is shallow, then my understanding of forgiveness is gonna be shallow too. We love to think of forgiveness as kind of one of two things, right? We think of forgiveness as as either um, just kind of let it go, right? Like we have all these sayings about forgiveness. We say, forgive and forget, right? Or we say, bury the hatchet, right? Or Or we say, oh, that's water under the bridge. And so we kind of have this idea that forgiveness is really shallow. It's just this kind of like, I'll let you off the hook. I'll kind of just pretend it didn't happen. We'll sweep it under the rug and move on. It's one way we can think about forgiveness. It's pretty shallow. Another way is that we'll treat forgiveness like I'll forgive if you pay. So then it's very much of a contract. It's very much of an economic process of you did X, Y, and Z to me, and so now I get to do X, Y, and Z to you, or you have to pay me back X, Y, and Z the same way that you hurt me. So it becomes very much a a, a tit for tat. But neither of these is true because in the story of sin... Hearts that don't love God, hearts that are incapable of choosing him, right, hearts that way down deep at the root want to love ourselves, want to love the created things more than the creator, something much more radical than this is needed, right? Something way more radical than just, oh, we'll just kind of let it go, we'll kind of bury the hatchet, we'll water under the bridge, or, or oh no, you're going to pay, you're going to give me back everything that you took from me, neither of those things work. And my friends, this is the surprise of Christianity. This is the surprise of the gospel that neither of those two things is what Jesus did. That when Jesus stood before that man lying on the, on the cot and he said, man, your sins are forgiven, what he said, knowing what he was gonna do is he said, that heart that you have that's not oriented toward me, that heart that has broken friendship with me, that heart that is not at peace with me, I'm gonna pursue it. In the face of this mistrust, in the face of this lack of faith, in the face of this outright disobedience, I am going to step forward toward you. And I'm going to eat the pain of that. I'm going to bear the cost of that. That when you have not done anything to come closer to me, I am going to come closer to you. As the offended party, I'm going to take the step forward. And guys, that is what the entire story, if we, if we talk about surprise being found in our stories and surprise being found when something happens in our stories that we don't understand, that is the basis of surprise in our lives. Tolkien, uh, you know, the, the famous writer, famous writer of many surprises in stories, author of Lord of the Rings, he calls this something, he calls this a "you catastrophe. Okay, the catastrophe, we understand, right? The, the word, the Greek word, that we, where we get our word, catastrophe. But you means good. You is a prefix that makes something good. Tolkien called this the you catastrophe. The, the amazing good catastrophe. The thing that was completely unexpected, that in the face of our willful disobedience, in the face of our hearts that are not aligned with the Lord, the Lord said, I will take that. I will move toward you and I will eat the pain. And so the great turn in our stories is what we read in Isaiah 53, right? When it talks about the Lamb of God being stricken for us, afflicted for us, Him taking the punishment for all the sins that we committed. It's the gospel surprise that Jesus got the justice that we deserved, right? He got the tit-for-tat. He was the one that took on the things that we were supposed to pay Him for what we did, and what do we get? We get the mercy. And so Christ's forgiveness means that he ate the pain. It is the, it's the utterly unexpected, the glorious news, the good news that we are now safe, that we are now brought back into right relationship with him. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he did. And so what that does is it, it turns our stories from tragedies, right, things looking okay, and then whoo, turns our stories from tragedies to comedies. What the, what the U catastrophe is, what the gospel turn in our story, what forgiveness is, what this young man professed standing up here is that he has had an experience of being at the bottom and recognizing that the Lord has moved toward him that now his story has turned from one of disobedience and what we know comes from that, the judgment that comes from that, and it has now turned toward love and acceptance. And we see that in our passage when the Pharisees looked at Jesus after he forgave sins, and what did they say? They didn't believe it. They said, only God can forgive sins. And of course, the answer is yes, exactly, but they just couldn't believe that that was actually what was happening in front of them, because what they did is what we often do. When we're faced with the glorious, unbelievable surprise of the gospel, is we do what the Pharisees do, and we say, no, it can't be true. Okay, maybe there's like, you know, God loves me, and maybe God, you know, has grace for me, but, but I gotta do my part, right? And guys, don't run away. Of course we fight sin, Right? Of course, we get up here in the trees and we lop off these branches of sin and we say, I'm gonna put that to death. But do we do that because we believe that that's somehow gonna work down and heal heal our roots, heal our hearts? No, we do that from a place of recognizing the Lord has moved toward me. He has put a new heart in me. He has given me a new spirit. He has risen me from the dead spiritually. And so now I come toward him and I say, Lord, how do I fight? How do I fight my sin? And how do I do it from a place of freedom? Because the last words that God, that Jesus gives to this man is he says, get up and walk. He says, get up and walk. He heals his legs. And then he says, stand up in the forgiveness that I've given you, in the new heart that I've given you, in the new relationship you now have with me because of what I've done, get up and walk. Go, run, flourish. Be the man and the woman and the child that you were created to be. You do that from this place of forgiveness because that's where freedom is. Let me pray. Father, um, <laughs> one thing I pray is that we wouldn't miss the fact that this man uh, was carried in on a stretcher. <laughs> that he actually had a community that walked him to Jesus. That maybe in this whole process, we, we can't even come to Jesus' forgiveness on our own without the help of our friends. Like maybe you've built such a weakness in us, Lord, that we need the people sitting to our right and to our left, the people we're married to, the people we're friends with, maybe even the people we don't like very much to put us on that stretcher and carry us to Jesus. Lord, help us uh, to believe the undeniable but also unbelievable fact that in our complete disobedience to you, in our complete rebellion against you, that you move toward us. Help us to believe that. It's unbelievable. It is a surprise, but it's the best surprise. So give us the grace to walk in that this week, to get up and walk, to take up our mat and walk, and give us friends around us to carry us to Jesus when we can't do that on our own. Pray this in your name, amen.